Today on The Change Law, we're talking with Ben Johnson. Ben is known for his work on BoltDB and his work in open source as a freelance Go developer. Late in January, when Ben opened source's news project, Lightstream, in the readme, he shared how the project was open source, but not open for contribution. His reason was to protect his mental health and the long-term viability of the project. On this episode, we talk with Ben about what that means, his thoughts on mental health and burnout in open source, choosing a license, and the details behind Lightstream, a standalone streaming replication tool for SQLite. Big thanks to our partners Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Linode is simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing the developers trust. Linode is our cloud of choice. We trust them, and we think you should build anything you're working on, a fun side project, or that next big infra move at work with Linode. The best part, you can get started on Linode with $100 in free credit. Get all the details at linode.com changelog, or text changelog to 474747, and get instant access to that $100 in free credit. Again, linode.com changelog. Ben, you're back. It's good to have you back on this show. You've been on Go Time. You've been on the change like forever ago, basically. But uh, yeah, you know, we don't want to bear the lead. There's a new open source database out there, Lightstream. But the reason why we reached out to you was because of, I suppose, the anti-normal of open source but close to contributions aspect of what you wrote there. So let's open it up there. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, like you mentioned, it's a it's a database. It's actually a database tool that wraps around SQLite. To let you stream your data into the cloud, basically just run, so you can run SQLite in production and have it safely persisted. And yeah, the it got a lot of notoriety uh, early on, not for the actual code that I wrote, but for the, the kind of the code that I'm not allowing. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that, it's really um, yeah, there's a there's a closed contribution policy on the repo, and it came from just kind of uh, some other projects I've done over the past, like uh, BoltDB I wrote quite a while ago, uh, and a lot of them just kind of became just being a lot of maintenance and not even just uh, like checking code and doing all that, but just like responding and just really, I know you're trying to take a lot of people's desires for what they want in the project. And 90% of the time you have to say, no, that's not really where we're going with this. And like just trying to, to figure out that overhead and trying to mitigate that. Yeah. Yeah. What you said in the, in the readme was I've made the, you've said some more than this, but I'll give the, the TLDR version of it. I've made the decision to keep this project closed to contributions for my own mental health and long-term viability of the project, which I think, you know, we'll go into the deeper parts of it because you've done other open source before and you've got some scars and some, you know, some history to you and, you know, some aspects to, I guess, what motivates you, but what kind of feedback did you get initially from this? Was it a lot of like high fives or was it a lot of like, whoa, hey Ben, that's kind of wrong or or what happened? What's the fallout so much from that line there? Sure. Uh, I mean, I was fully expecting people to just rag on that. Actually, I expected people to not really even notice it because it was buried at the bottom of a long readme at first. <laughs> and it somehow made to Hacker News. And uh, honestly, I would say it was probably 95% supportive. Just other people just kind of saying, oh, yeah, I've, I've totally been there, too. It's just a lot to take on and take it in changes and uh, try to manage that thing. And really, like, 
I guess my goal, I, I really try to distill it down to like, what is my goal for this project? And I think, you know, I don't, I tend to make tools that are minimal. Like I, I have a fixed idea of what I want to build. So for, for Lightstream, I want to run SQLite in production and anything that doesn't really support that, you know, any extra use cases are just not that important to me. And I want to make it as simple as possible. So I didn't really necessarily want to make the biggest project or the fanciest project. I wanted to make something that just kind of works and works well for what I'm doing. So I didn't see external contributions really moving the needle, you know, in that, you know, for that kind of thing. And actually that being said, I feel like there's a fascination in our industry where around code and like contributing code. But like, honestly, like I feel like the code piece is such a small part of it all. If anything, I would love to, you know, have people try it out, test it out, you know, submit feedback, bugs, that kind of stuff. I feel like that is like, or even like docs changes. Uh, I feel like that's like 90% of the project. And then like the little bits and bobs of the code are, yeah. you know, a smaller piece. Well, that's why we wanted to talk to you really about this, because I feel like there's a lot of nuance here. And, and you know, prior to that, you said you're grateful for community involvement, bug reports. So you did say those things. And, you know, but the highlight really was that you wanted to keep it close to contributions for whatever reasons, whether it's mental health or, long-term viability, as you mentioned, but just for whatever reason, you wanted to kind of keep the code base itself limited to your input because you had a specific scope. And I think that's that's where you kind of have to have, you know, a podcast like this go into those details yeah. where mm-hmm. it's literally Ben Johnson sharing with us the details of why that makes sense for your project and how you can see community involvement still taking place, but just not so much in the contribution to the code base itself. Yeah, for sure. And actually, I can give you some good examples too. Recently, where um, some people, you know, one thing that people wanted to see was Windows support and the, the code changes to make Windows support happen were relatively small. I would say it was probably, you know, a dozen, two dozen lines of code. But actually, like, I haven't run Windows in like 10 years, 10, 15 years. <laughs> so, like, actually getting in and reading the docs on, like, how Windows services work and, like, getting that up and running, getting a VPS started that runs on Windows, you know, doing, like, RDP over to that and logging in, setting stuff up and, like, all the packaging stuff around MSI installers, getting a, a code signing certificate. Like there's just like a million things to do to actually make this really run and like have a good developer experience that aren't just those, you know, 20 lines of code that were, you know, pushed in. So mm-hmm. I feel like that those are the kind of the underappreciated parts that you really just never see. But that's really kind of what makes the project rather than the actual the code itself. Actually another one that came up right after that was um S3 compatible stores. So right now it pushes to S3, Amazon S3. And there was, I don't know, maybe like a four line change to make it work with like Minio or GCS, yeah, Google Cloud Storage, uh, a couple other cloud stores. And those little bits aren't that hard just to kind of put a little tweak in there, but I wanted to make sure that the experience of getting on and trying it with those pieces and how they integrate into the docs and like changing mm-hmm. the get it, getting started to make it simpler to, for people to actually try it out. And like going through and testing, uh, like all those those things, it's just crazy that everything beyond the code that really does get talked about. But it's just hugely important. Yeah. I may be splitting hairs here, but you say it's not open to contribution, and it sounds like those are all contributions. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. That's probably uh, some copy <laughs> editing I need to change. Um, those are huge contributions. I guess code contribution is the yeah. thing it's close to. Just only Ben can write code, but everybody else can be. Because the question is, like, if I don't want contributions, and it's like, well, why did you open source it? But it's clear why you open sourced it, because you do want participation or key to community involvement mm-hmm. and all these things. It's just specifically, like, you're writing the code for this project. 
yeah. And I think there's a lot around, you know, the actual direction of um, like usability, how you want it to feel, how everything integrates together that I think is easy to miss if you're an outside contributor, just bringing an initial PR into the project. And, you know, I think I could certainly get people up and running and like explain to them why certain things go together or certain things work the way they do. Um, but again, that's, that's just a lot of overhead that I'm, I'm not necessarily opposed to, but is that time better spent building the product and making it kind of gel a little better together? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I guess from my side, I haven't gotten to that point where I need a second person to come on and really commit code in that kind of way. So break it down for us then, a suggestion or a contribution non-code-wise. How does that happen? Does it simply sure. happen in issues or, hey, Ben, by the way, I want to have not just simply S3, I want to support Minio or mm-hmm. XYZ store. Like, How does that permutate into the actual code base? Does it just simply come through you or how does it work? Uh, I mean, yeah, issues have been a great way. It's been pretty active on there so far. Uh, people just, uh, if they have bugs, they tell me, or if they have issues running it or whatnot. Uh, that's a great way to do it. Uh, the GitHub discussions I've actually really liked, where you kind of have some, like a threaded discussion board, uh, mm-hmm. which I feel like they haven't really announced enough because I don't know a lot of projects are using that. Uh, but I find that's a great way to kind of get people on and talking about stuff that don't feel like they necessarily have an issue. They just more have a question or like, you know, what's the best usage for this kind of thing? So I think those are great ways to do it. Uh, as far as the, like the documentation, that's actually all MIT licensed. So yeah. if someone wants to come in and make changes, suggestions, or you know, fix typos, that kind of thing, or any whatever contributions from a doc side. Um, that's that's all open source and open contribution. Open, I guess, not really code contribution, but <laughs> PR <Right. laughs> contribution. So you didn't make this decision in a vacuum, and your previous experiences obviously informed this decision, at least some. So you're talking about mental health and really like your enjoyment overall and the success of the project are kind of informing this decision. What have you been through that brought you here? Have you been through burnout? Have you been through terrible pull requests or code con- yeah. low value code contributions? What's the kind of stuff that you've been dealing with over the years? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think so previously I'd written bolt which is a database and go it's a key value store. And that project, you know, there, there were definitely valuable contributions. Uh, I don't want to like diminish that. Uh, but I feel like a lot of contributions either they can fall in two buckets, I'd say that, or a few buckets, I guess. So you can have, you know, very small kind of trivial contributions, which, you know, that's, I don't have anything against small contributions at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you also have kind of like mid-sized to large contributions, which can really either skew the scope of your project very much. And like a lot of times you just can't accept those or you have to do a lot of changes to really accept those. Uh, and the other side of that is that, you know, if you do get, some great feature added the person that added that feature that sent a pull request they're not probably going to be around six months from now when people are asking you to support that and you know something's broken on it and you got to debug that so i guess you know i kind of come from a a back a database background over the last decade or so and i find that people in other kind of realms of the industry I feel like they really focus on like, hey, look at this new feature, this great feature we have, blah, blah, blah. Like they, they really tout that. Whereas in my position, I really see features as like a liability. Like every little feature I add is something that could possibly corrupt a database. Like it's mm. you know, really pretty serious. I mean, not Lightstream. Lightstream doesn't actually break your, your overwrite your database. Right. But, you know, there are huge liabilities if you just uh, add some small pieces of code. I feel like there's like a, a utility side and a liability side to every feature. I feel like the utility side needs to like 
vastly outweigh the liability side. So that's why I feel like I tend to reject a lot of features. Mm-hmm. I've heard it said often that code is a liability and features are assets, but I've never heard anybody say features are liabilities. <laughs> I definitely see where you're coming from. With that being said, you're probably talking about the, the code of the features, right? The maintenance of the features, uh, which are liabilities. I think you interact, like features interact with each other. And like the more that you have, I think they, those interactions really grow kind of um, exponentially. Or is it exponential mm-hmm. or, geogra- or whatever, geometrically? <laughs> Some kind of math equation <laughs> where <laughs> you know, they, just, they can there. really grow uh, as they interact with each other. And there's just going to be unexpected ways that they do that. So, I mean, I think... Features really much, really very much do, even from a documentation standpoint or usability standpoint, are liabilities. Yeah. And they're kind of one-way streets as well because it's it's easy to add, but it's very difficult to remove, oh, especially yeah. if you have empathy for your users, right? Like, I can't just take away this thing that you're relying upon, but it's really screwing up this part of the code base, you know? And mm-hmm. so in that way, it's a liability, even though that person sees it as the value as the maintainer, all you see is how it's slowing you down or causing you headaches. Because mm-hmm. taking it away is selfish lots of times as a maintainer. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, I've thought about, um, like, I thought about different ways you can kind of run ByteStream and whatnot. And I've really been trying to figure out how to run SQLite and a serverless platform, which is a weird idea. But I feel like it's, it'd be an easy way to get people to deploy their applications and it runs just simply with no configuration outside of your uh, serverless platform. And for that, like one idea I had was running kind of a service for people where they can, you know, replicate to the server that's outside their kind of serverless platform. Sorry, this is a long story, but um, like in thinking about that, like it kind of stresses me out a bit to think like, hey, if someone does choose to use a service that they put out there, like I can't just give up on it. You know, they they might be really relying on it for their business or their organization. And uh yeah, I feel like this is like a commitment you really need to consider a lot for sure in the long-term effects. Features are kind of like hiring people in a way, right? If oh, yeah. you want to uh, have an analogy, I think of that with business even. Like uh, I can recall back in the day when I worked for a nonprofit and I was very green behind the ears or what's the word, wet behind the wet ears, whatever behind the, the ears. Yeah. Is, that a, is that a bad term to say these? I don't know. It's, yeah. I think it means you ha- you're fresh out of the water, isn't it? Yeah, I was inexperienced, let's just say, in the, in the realm of business. A lot of ambition, but my boss, the founder of the company, the nonprofit company, I was keen on getting the help because we needed support in the de- design front. And I wanted to hire somebody like ASAP because I was the one feeling the burden of, of like the need, essentially. So the feature. Mm-hmm. And he's like, we, we got to be slow to hire. And he taught me this lesson essentially about being slow to hire. And it seems similar with slow to feature, essentially, because, yeah. you know, for every feature or for every hire, you may have to eventually deprecate it or fire them or circumstances change. And so just be very wise and very calculated with your hires or very calculated with your feature adoption. Mm-hmm. No, I agree 100% for sure. And it's easy to get in over your head because like when that feature comes in for free overnight while you were sleeping and like all you have to do is hit this button and it's exciting that somebody likes your software mm-hmm. enough to work on it, you know? Yeah. Like I haven't had this like a successful project like you have been with BoltDB or any of the other stuff. I've had things where, you know, maybe it's my open source deal or you know, I, I would love the contributions and never quite got there. But I've gotten features, you know, like little ones or big, uh, medium-sized mm-hmm. ones on a few projects. And for me, it's always been like, I'll giddy about it. But that's like 
kind of like you get a dopamine hit and it's enjoyable. And so you just do something yeah. quickly because you're like, yeah, no, somebody cares. But then <laughs> mm-hmm. six months down the road, you're like, why did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I certainly, I still, still feel the same way when people, you know, submit issues on the project, like, or submit, you know, feature requests and things like that. or want to discuss it. Like, you know, I love talking about this stuff and, and yeah. working on it with people. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree. It's, there could be some regret later on. <laughs> yeah. So when you made this choice, have you uh, read Nadia Ekbal's Working in Public or have you been thinking about these things? Because the reason why I made the connection, I thought maybe it was inspired by that because she said in that book and on our podcast afterwards, like one of the things she's realized over this time, you know, researching and being part of open source is like she realized that open source doesn't mean open participation and it doesn't have to mean that. And that resonated with me. And when I saw your post, I thought, I wonder if maybe you had been inspired by that concept or maybe you came up with this completely in a silo. I mean, I haven't read the book. I may have seen other posts of hers. I'm sure, Mm -hmm. yeah, she definitely influences thoughts around this. I think that there's definitely a crowd of Twitter OSS maintainers that, you know, we commiserate a bit to each other when we see, you know, Mm -hmm. like a, a project gets closed down because someone gets burned out or you see these kind of large public things that happen like that where, you know, it happens, someone has a hard time, closes the project or it shuts down or something goes sideways. And like, you know, a bunch of people all kind of know that feeling. We kind of share that feeling. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about like open source sustainability, but I think it's like a, just, just a hard problem. Like, I don't know as far as like, you know, how do you get people working on open source, which is free. And, you know, I don't feel like people have really found great ways of making money off of it to like sustain them in that way financially. Mm-hmm. So I think there's people out there trying to figure this stuff out like her. And I don't think there's really an answer quite yet, but I think that trying to maintain, like lower that burden at least in some way, I think can maybe help in some incremental small way. Yeah. Well, I think that your choice here and I think probably her findings and her statement, which she said on this show and elsewhere, that it doesn't have to be participatory because because many times it, it is the situation where you have the one maintainer serving the, the many users and the contribution does not scale alongside the user growth. And she calls mm-hmm. that a, a stadium. I don't know. It's like you're kind of a oh, rock star yeah. in a stadium. Oh. You know, there's one person on the lead microphone and there's a hundred thousand in the stands pre-COVID. Oh, sure. Now there's like yes. uh, 10% of a hundred thousand <laughs> people on the zoom. <laughs> there's yeah. cutouts. There's yeah, social, cutouts yeah, now there's a hundred thousand cutouts out there, you know? So yeah. like that circumstance happens a lot where the growth of the project happens, but the growth of contribution doesn't, doesn't scale or doesn't match. And that's okay. And it's okay to actually even say, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm the only person on this and that's the way I want it to be. And I think it's fitting for like scoped things like this, like the tools you like to build where it's not, a thing that you're going to work on into infinity necessarily unless mm. it, unless it grows outside of the scope that you initially defined. But I think what that comment from her did and maybe uh, probably what you, yours has done with this like putting your stake in the ground and then having it on hacker news and 95% positive is probably given a lot of other people permission to do that. You know to feel like oh, Ben can do it, I can do the same thing because a lot of us like to put stuff out into the world just for that reason. And don't necessarily want it to be community projects. Like the open source does not have to be community maintained. Yeah. It doesn't have to. No, be. yeah. You know, I was thinking about this today. Like, I feel like there's kind of two kinds of projects out there. You have frameworks and you have libraries. And this is kind of the debate out there. Like, do you build this big 
scope thing, say like a, a React or like a Kubernetes, like I'm not going to build that by myself. Like it's meant to have this huge overarching scope that your application runs on top of versus, you know, say you have a library or a tool that is kind of an incremental small scope piece. And I don't like writing frameworks. That's just not my passion. I don't like those never ending scope projects. I like saying, hey, here's a problem and here's a solution and mm-hmm. build the tool for it, you know? So I feel like my favorite projects are those kind of projects. And within those tools, I feel like the best projects of those tend to have kind of that benevolent dictator for life kind of management around it. Mm. So why do you do open source? Like what's your intrinsic reason? I would say it's twofold. I like the reach that open source has where like, you know, when I wrote Bolt DB, I had people say that I could try to monetize it. I don't have any idea how you monetize it. <laughs> like an embedded database like that, but I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could make more money than I did off of it, obviously. And to take that and then say, hey, this is free for anybody to use, and it gets picked up by another project, and then like it got picked up by etcd, and then etcd got put into Kubernetes. And it's just kind of, it's crazy to think of the reach that, you know, BoltDB, while it's a small, small, small piece, is, you know, deployed in some of the largest companies in the world, you know, helping to, you know, persist state in their etcd cluster. So like little things like that, just seeing that I can make some small incremental change in the world that has large reach. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that's probably the biggest reason I do open source. And then kind of a, a secondary reason is like, you know, a lot of things that you do at a day job are, you know, you're doing credit apps or you're doing things that, you know, move the business forward, but they're never going to be like this kind of edgy, researchy, kind of like down in the weeds, fixing some really deep, interesting problem a lot of times. A lot of times it's just kind of, a day-to-day kind of kind of work you do. So I feel like the open source stuff that I do tends to be kind of that more esoteric, unusual stuff. So like this, for example, like Lightstream, it's one of those problems that I've always had where I don't want to have like a complicated application deployment. I just want to use SQLite. How do I make that happen? Like what is the thing that's stopping me from doing that in a production app? And you know, I could never write Lightstream for a company because that just sounds ridiculous. Like there are other solutions out there that People could, you know, you could run Postgres and you can run on RDS on Amazon. Like there's not a justifiable reason to build Lightstream in a company. Uh, so like that kind of thing. Uh, I worked on a project before that where I ported over um, a tool called Klee, K-L-E-E. It's this crazy code execution tool where it basically like it'll analyze your code and go through kind of all the paths of the code. And you can like do things where you can generate test cases from code. And it has like a like a solver in the back end. And anyway, it does all these kind of crazy things. I ported that over to use with Go. But like, you know, I, I spent a ton of time on that. I released it, but it never, it was never really finished. I just kind of wanted to try these new things and kind of experiment and, you know, push my brain in different ways, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really like an intellectual kind of interest. That was a long answer. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool helps you build internal tools fast and easy. 
From startups to Fortune 500s, the world's best teams use Retool to power their internal apps. Assemble your app in just a few minutes by dragging and dropping from pre-built components. Connect to most databases or anything with a REST, GraphQL, or gRPC API. Retool empowers you to work with all your data sources seamlessly in one single app. Retool is highly hackable, so you're never limited by what's available out of the box. If you can write it in JavaScript and an API, you can build it in Retool. You can use their cloud service or host it on-prem for yourself. Learn more and try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. So one of the reasons that you say you do open source is because of the potential impact of your code. Which I think is a great reason. I think it's one reason why lots of people do open source. And it's pretty cool to see, like you said, your your little database, your little key value store, you know, like inside Kubernetes powering all these deployments. It has to be satisfying. Was there any fear or trepidation or concern that maybe this decision around no code contributions would limit Lightstream's impact? I probably was probably a little naive with it. I just I thought nobody would notice, to be quite honest. <laughs> nobody would notice um, Lightstream or nobody would notice this policy. The, the contribution policy. I mean I thought it was I mean I thought some people might, you know, when they try to open a PR, but I don't think it'd become uh, a big big topic. So actually the thing that I worry more that would limit people, this is actually the first project I've ever used uh, GPL for. Um, and yeah, I'm still not sure about that decision. I mean I think I haven't had any blowback. I was surprised I haven't had any blowback about that, but yeah, I think not being able to embed it or just, I don't know, people get weird about copyleft licenses. Mm-hmm. What drove that decision? It's weird, the little things that kind of move, like change your mind. Like, I've always written libraries. So, like, libraries, especially in Go, like, you pretty much have to have a very open license, like MIT or Apache. And uh, this is kind of the first command line tool that I ever wrote that kind of runs separate from the application. And uh, Mike Perham, I think that's how you say his name, from Sidekick, he had a tweet like years ago that just always stuck in my head. And it was basically, and I think it was kind of trolling a little bit, but he was basically saying like, you know, if you don't license a GPL, you just don't care about your code or like don't care about your, I mean, he was being trolling. I think it's a little bit in jest, but that kind of sat with me and just like, you know, if you don't really control the, you know, what happens to your code and where it goes and what people do with it, you know, you kind of limit the ways you can grow that project. And, you know, I think there are, Again, around like sustainability, I think that I guess my biggest thing with sustainability is that it feels like uh, I know GitHub's recently ordered like or added like corporate sponsorships, but a lot of it's always focused around like individuals contributing to other individuals doing open source. Whereas like really the people that benefit the most are you know these bigger companies that could easily spend a thousand dollars a year, or whatever, paying for some library that really supports their business and. I think having more control around the actual license and what people can end up doing with it, um, I think can really kind of shape you know that conversation mm-hmm. more. That that makes sense. I'm not trying to sound too yeah. greedy or anything, but I'm just I'm really just I find that kind of be a, a fascinating direction that I've never really taken before. Have you read this license end to end, Ben? Just curious. The GPL. Yeah. I don't know if I've read it end to end. I think I've read it. At, like most parts of at one point, but I probably should. It's a long license. <laughs> Over the years of long. having so many more conversations about licenses, I find myself actually reading, you know, more and more. Now I haven't, I have to admit, I haven't read the GPL end to end, but I don't have any code out there that has it adopted as its license. So I, yeah. 
at least I'm clear there and you're not, but yeah, that's sort of bullshit. <laughs> but I'm just curious. That's totally a good point. When you choose this license and, you know, you mentioned Mike Param and that tweet and, you know, whether it was in jest or not, like what, what specifically about this license, like what clauses made you think like, okay, this is suited for Lightstream? Sure. And that's a good point. And I will say like, I tend to defer to people that probably know more than I do. And like, I'll read uh, summaries on a license more than I will go word for word in the license and pick it apart because I'm, I'm no lawyer. I mean, I think the ideas around, you know, if you're going to use this code, or not even just use it, if you're going to take the code and change it around, like, you know, I think that that stuff should be put back in the world for the benefit of everybody. Like, um, and I think that, you know, the one thing I don't like about it with libraries is like linking this tool into your, your code suddenly means your code needs to be GPL as well. And that's, mm-hmm. that seems ridiculous to me. Whereas Lightstream is pretty isolated. It's, it's a single binary runs next to your application and any changes to that should, I would assume probably be helpful ultimately to the, the wider community out there. And yeah, I, I would welcome, if not even the code contributions from that, just simply the, uh, the ideas around what people are changing about it and putting that back out there. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that whatever value is there currently or could be derived from the future, whether it's you changing it or someone else changing it, you want to make sure that future public use, the open source spirit remains with the software. Yeah, that's basically the idea. Yeah, so if I adopt it at my company and then we invest you know, labor hours into making Lightstream 10x faster, or I don't know what sort of metric mm-hmm. you would improve Once. it, right? Yeah. I'm a 10x <laughs> engineer, so I 10x it. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you touch the code, it just goes up. That's faster. right. Immediately. Yeah. I actually yeah. just put a comment in there that says 10x, and then I... <laughs> anyways, I would have to, you know, you'd want that to be out in the world, right? Like, yeah. even if that code's not going back into Lightstream, you may look at that and be like, oh, well, that's a clever thing Jared did. I can't believe he's such a good 10Xer. And then you might just pr- yeah. pull that in. But if I didn't have to do that, we could just keep it for ourselves and Lightstream yeah. wouldn't yeah. benefit and the world wouldn't benefit. Exactly, yeah. Well, let's let's be honest real quick, Jared. You're not a 10Xer. <laughs> no, I'm not a 10Xer. You're 11Xer. Oh, yeah. thank you. <laughs> 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 you called me out, yeah. <laughs> Insofar Anyways. as I can multiply things by 11. I, that's right. Yeah. But that's as far as I'll go. So you were concerned that GPL would limit it. You weren't so concerned that the non-open code contribution would be a limiter. But it sounds like, at least in terms of an open source project, it's off to a great start, wouldn't you say? Lots of attention, lots of people looking at yeah, it. No, yeah, so far so good. I haven't had anybody push back on the GPL. I think one person asked about it, and then I told him why, and they just said, okay. And they moved on. Yeah. So yeah, that's been good to see for sure. You mentioned that you made this choice somewhat naive in a naive way. And I'm curious if there were alternative options. Cause I suppose you could not put it out there so explicitly, no, you know, it's open source but no contributions. You could just simply just not accept pull requests, <laughs> which is kind of what GitHub forces you to do now, right? Because yeah. like even though you've made yeah. this declaration in your readme, it doesn't mean that the tooling has supported uh, your desires for keeping your your pull request closed, you're still sort of stuck with that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I've had folks from GitHub reach out over DM on Twitter, um, asking what they can do to help support uh, the project. And I, I honestly, I just asked for being able to to check off the uh, you know to, to hide the the pull request, just not allow those. I think that'll go a long way. And it, it sounds like it's something they've definitely debated and they've talked about. Yeah. 
Um, and I'm sure there are, there are nuanced reasons why they can or can't do that. And maybe that's coming in the future, but I'm not, I'm not privy to those decision, decisions. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it would unload a huge burden on people if they just didn't have to, to think about that. And like closing PRs after the fact is like just the most soul sucking thing to do <laughs> where it's yeah. like someone might've put in so much time into a PR yeah, and totally. then you have to just like close the issue or close it and be like, I'm so sorry. Like I can't, I can't take this cause it's not what I'm looking for. Or like, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to be as explicit as I can without before someone really puts all that time into it. Yeah. It's really difficult, I suppose, in the world of open source to not waste someone's time without some sort of explicit visual cue. I would imagine if you have a repository that does not have pull requests, which is sort of – I can remember when, you know, back in 2008 when GitHub first launched, like that was the cool thing. Like PRs mm-hmm. is the DNA of GitHub essentially. So if you take that away, to me, you'd need to be visually far more clear on a repository that that's not an option. Like – maybe a red banner or something. I don't know, just something yeah. very different, like starkly different than no, that's totally every other repository. Out or there. that skull and crossbones emoji. Be <laughs> there you go. None shell fast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a license, like, you know, how the license shows up on there. It'd be nice to have yeah. some kind of, I, mean, I guess it's community guidelines. I don't know. There's something I feel like they could, they could do to basically say like, I don't know. We're welcoming, but not that welcoming. <laughs> right. I was going to say, what's the, what's the most polite way to say PR is not welcome? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> you may have done it. It's definitely been like a, an interesting thing to tiptoe around. And like, how do you convey to somebody that I value your input, just not the code that you're giving me? You know, mm-hmm. that's a nuanced thing that I don't think I accomplished very well. <laughs> right. And you're touching on it. That's exactly why I thought that it would make sense to talk through this with you because we've had you know, I would say the luxury of knowing you for many years now, not like buddies hanging out on the weekends, but we've known yeah. you for many years and I know where your heart is at, or at least we have some a, a direction of where your heart's at with open source in the community. And, you know, a passerby, a brand new person to Ben Johnson and your code and who you are may not understand the nuanced reason of why you would make this choice. You know, and I think that's good luck to GitHub and the interface designers there <laughs> to... Put, to encapsulate what this podcast may convey mm-hmm. well or not so well in a button or some sort of visual buttons, it's going to be difficult. <laughs> but no, yeah, I think the it's the podcast is a great medium to to convey that. Even like a blog <laughs> post is not going to right. Know, people can read that in different ways. And I mean, hopefully, I don't sound like a on here, but you know, it's easy to come up that way when it's just written text. Yeah, I mean, I'm just enjoying the thought of. GitHub putting our podcast in a button somewhere. Just <laughs> when you click the button, you just have to listen to this conversation. It's like here, this is why he's doing it. All right, there you go. <laughs> Going back to like the GitHub features end of this, so you can put like you could use an issue template, but is there like a PR template? Like, is there anything anything in between the person and their pull request besides your README where you could inject a thing that says, "Hey, don't do that. Like, don't waste your time." There's a PR template which I had the same kind of uh, paragraph about why I don't take pull requests. And, but again, like you have to get to the point of finishing the code and pull requesting it to actually right. see that. So, I mean, in that sense, like, you know, the person still has wasted their time. I don't see that pull request that I have to then close, <laughs> which probably right. makes it easier for me, but like, it still mm-hmm. hurts that somebody may have put time into that. Yeah. You almost want it like on the fork button, you know, like when you click fork, it might tell you at that point that yeah. you can fork this project, but know that. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah. Because that's usually the first step that I would do is fork it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless you're doing an edit 
like to the read, like a typo edit on the readme inside the GitHub web yeah. interface. Yeah, some like full screen banner that comes across and just says, you're not taking this code back. So once you force Right, so what would happen if somebody came up to you and like, you just misspelled something in your readme and they just, they just did it anyways? Are you going to close it and be like, I'm going to commit the same change with my own signature? It's something I've definitely struggled with. I have in the argument of slippery slopes, but like it is one of those things where like, I don't have a problem with small pull requests, like those little tiny minutia, but then there's right. going to be somebody who instead of changing a word, they change like the whole sentence and they like, maybe it just reads in a weird way or it's not just not the, uh, what I'm trying to do, or then, you know, maybe it becomes a small code change, but then that slowly grows. And I, I, I don't have a perfect answer for this. Like this is really yeah. an experiment. So I don't want to come across the saying, like, I know that this is the best way to do, you know, open source out there. Um, and it definitely has its flaws and this is a, a perfect example of one. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, it's definitely hard. It's tough. Yeah. Yeah, because like it seems so petty to be like, actually, I'm not going to accept this because I don't accept them. Yeah. But like, once you accept one, now you're like your list of contributors is two people. Yeah. And yep. right, and you can't go back on that. And now it's like I don't, I don't accept contributions. <laughs> what about that person? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do you accept exactly. that one? Like, oh, now I have to have this conversation. You know, every couple of weeks or whenever it happens. So yeah. Uh, or even back to the license, if you you know you mentioned GPL being good now, for some reason you change your mind. Every contributor is yeah, a liability you gotta, to you know, a veto to that change. Yeah, you got to do like a True. CLA, like a contributor license agreement. I think that's what it stands Right. For. And then that becomes a whole thing. And like, I don't know, it's just, <laughs> I, I really appreciate people pointing out the typos and whatnot, but it's just the amount of overhead just seems weird compared to the actual, the value of the change, you know? This all comes back to the scope of Lightstream though. The scope is is limited, and that's why you want to sort of maintain control. It's also influenced by past interactions in open source and your work, right? Like it's it's a culmination of many things that that isn't just simply I prefer my code, not yours. Like it's that's not what you're saying. You're saying I mean I, I do be the contributor to it. I have the best code, well, but <laughs> <laughs> and you never make a typo, right? Like that's how you solve that problem. No yeah. typos. Boom. Well, you're not saying it condescendingly, is what I mean. Yeah, exactly. You, you yeah. may be saying that, but you're not saying it as like you know you suck, I'm better. It's more like I just have a preference here. Yeah, for it's your sure. prerogative to feel that way, Ben. No, yeah. I mean, I think everyone right. generally prefers their own code, but I think there's there's definitely something around continuity of code, like. You know, if I contribute to somebody else's repo, my code, you know, even if I really try to follow their code style, it's going to be a different approach. It's going to be a different just way of doing things, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's going to be that that one section of code and their whole code base that just works a little bit differently. And they got to kind of keep that in the back of their head or they can come in with your PR and like change it around to the way they would do it. You know, that kind of refactor. Mm-hmm. Let's be super explicit then. If if someone on the GitHub team is listening, what exactly is your request to make the way you want to run this operate? Is it simply turn off PRs and hide the button or hide the fork or do some of the things that Jared mentioned? Like, yeah, what's I a think, good suggestion? I think hide the PRs is probably number one. I think some notification when someone tries to fork, I think it would be awesome as well. I think that's a great idea. But I mean, beyond that, I think, um, I, mean, I think the discussions are a great direction to move the conversation away from from code and actually the use of the tool um, and how people use it. Like that's really like the thing that I miss out on for a lot of things is like use cases and like how you use it and the workflows and stuff like that. Um, not usually, I mean the code in Lightstream isn't like, you're not going to be blown away by it. I'm not doing like SIMD crazy, whatever um, coding in there. It's just, you know, 
ifs and for loops and whatever you do in code. So like the, the real value of it, I feel like is when you actually apply that stuff and how that looks in the real world. So I think like discussions go a long way in that. And then I would say my other request to GitHub, and we talked about this briefly, but like they do corporate sponsorships now. I actually, I really wish they would only like allow you to only take corporate sponsorships. <laughs> I feel really weird about taking money from other individual developers. And I actually, I don't do sponsorships for that reason. And actually, if you really want a wish list beyond that, I would say, I think that there is this idea, like there's an idea that like corporations should come along and benevolently support projects. You know, it's in their own self-interest for sure, but it's definitely a charity. And I don't think that's the right way to frame it. I don't think you're ever going to convince a large swath of companies to support open source um, without really giving them something direct and tangible in value. Mm -hmm. So I know it's a contentious idea, but like, some idea of giving priority support to some corporate sponsorships or giving some additional benefits that you can really give to a company and say, Hey, if you sponsor this thing for, I don't know, a hundred bucks a month, then you get these benefits. You know, you can do that outside of GitHub. There are ways of doing that, but I think to streamline it inside of GitHub would be really powerful. I think that would really motivate a lot of open source contributors. Mm. I think the framing of the sponsorship is really where it gets, as you said, weird. Even I would say at a company level, I would personally much prefer it if you just offered a product and that one product was just simply support and it was mm -hmm. only open to corporations or businesses, LLC, corporation, whatever you want to be, just not an individual. You know, mm -hmm. So a individual software maintainer like yourself doing business with corporations and I – I might personally prefer to just do the business with that business personally rather than leverage GitHub. But I think if GitHub could you know, produce tooling, mm -hmm. the framing of it being sponsors or GitHub sponsors, like that's where it gets in my mind weird. Like even for us, we as a podcast network and a podcast business, a media company, we sell sponsorships. But once we pass that threshold of like relationship, we begin to call them and treat them much like partners because we're not looking yeah. for sponsors and transactions we're looking for people who care mm -hmm. about us as a business the community we serve which is software developers and that's i think you know they get in the door with the word sponsorship but we we soon after help them understand our own lexicon which is you know we treat you like a sponsor or a partner and not so much like a sponsor and at that point we prefer you to not be transactional and prefer to lean on relationship but I'm yeah. kind of going to the weeds on our own business, but that's, I think the word sponsorship is what gets yeah, a little fair. murky in my opinion. No, I think that's totally fair. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it. I think the, the biggest hurdle I think that GitHub can help with is that, you know, companies tend to have, you know, these painful procurement processes where you have to invoice them and it has to be whatever. I think to be able to streamline that piece, I think would help. Like yeah. the idea of most developers, you know, going through procurement processes for every company, I think seems overwhelming. I would be happy to pay GitHub 30% or whatever, you know, typical app store fees are to manage that kind of stuff, to provide tooling around that. Like I would have no problem giving that money away to them rather than having to kind of side channel all that stuff through a website I have to build or, you know, some tool I have to use outside of GitHub, you know? Mm -hmm. That makes sense because... If they can knock down all that red tape, all that minutiae in the process, the bureaucracy, 
yeah. of you know that buying process, PO numbers and accounts payable. Like it's just it can be a nightmare if you have no patience or you don't want to spend your time there. Mm-hmm. Which I would imagine you would just much rather write code yes. or handle, you know, non-existent pull requests or you know, hang in <laughs> right. discussions or whatever. I'm just kidding, but right. you know, that would be a better use of your time. And if if GitHub could level the playing field globally at a corporation level and remove that red tape and make it as easy as just a relationship thing, rather than saying, "Let me ask my accounts payable department," "Let me talk to my boss." Mm-hmm. We've already GitHub's already sort of leveled the playing field and made corporations who do want to pour back into or buy these kinds of, you know, would be products from open source developers like yourself. That would be pretty cool. And I don't have all the answers, so I mean, I'm sure there are reasons that is a terrible idea. And uh, but I think normalizing companies paying for some kind of product on top of open source, especially support or you know other things of that ilk, I think are a good direction for sure. Curious, Ben, if you've been to the SQLite website much or read much of their documentation lately. I have read all their documentation. <laughs> Did you read their copyright? Is it the public domain? Or is it? No. Is the it- reason why I ask is because they say something very similar to you. They say open source, comma, space, not open contribution. So even a lot of language is very similar on that front. And they say a lot of what you've said. And so similar stance, at least. Yeah, yeah. I think I pulled in some of that from the README as well. I think I tried to reference that. Okay. But it's uh, it definitely did influence um, some of my thoughts around it. So I, I don't mean to like discount anything that you know, they no, brought no, into the conversation. I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to draw similarities. Yeah, yeah. And I think that they do it mainly to kind of keep the copyright clean. Exactly. Um, and that's yeah. definitely part of what I'm doing. I think my main focus is more mental health and just you know keeping a really tight scope which I don't think necessarily applies for SQLite. I think they can broaden their scope yeah. quite a bit. Have you gotten the call yet? The call from, from Mr. Hip himself? That's right. No, yeah, actually, uh, they actually reached out uh, pretty early on. We did, a, we did a conference call with them. They were super nice. Yeah, they got on, and we kind of walked through how it all works, and I was fully expecting them to think that I have done some unspeakable, terrible things to their database. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they were quite supportive of it, so I really Is appreciate that, right? that. Yeah. Well, you know... Richard, even when he was on the show, he talked about, you know, essentially what you said in why you built Lightstream was SQLite is, is kind of touted the, as this toy database and not taken super seriously. And obviously when Jared and I had him on that show, I forget what episode that was, but it was 201. Yeah, episode 201. Great episode. And, and like, mm-hmm. you know, just a whole different side having had that conversation with Richard about SQLite and how it's used and even the, the business model behind it and how they run it. And I just drew some similarities, I suppose, to the to the challenges you have, and they they had some pretty expensive prices on their uh, uh, memberships, their pro support page, which is yeah. you know they've they've been able to make money from it, Ben. So I'm hopeful for you at least. No, yeah, no, I appreciate. You may be able to be in their 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 stream, so to speak. Yeah, pun intended. And you know, I've actually I won't say who this was, but I had a conversation with somebody who was a a CTO of a, a VC backed company. Mm-hmm. Uh, a database company, and he had talked to Richard Hip before, and you know, essentially, you know, they have they run their uh, their group, you know, they make money through I think uh, memberships, and you know, I don't know how I have no idea how much they make, and but the the guy was talking to him like you know how much you know you know how, how are you guys doing all that stuff and kind of like 
asking his approach to, to doing it that way instead of going the VC route and raising a bunch of money and doing a big exit. And my understanding, this is again, secondhand, but that Dr. Hip basically said, you know, how much time do you spend coding, you know, at your, at your company? And the guy that this VC backed company is like basically zero. He's just kind of management and talking to VCs and talking to investors and whatnot. And, you know, Dr. Hip basically said, you know, he gets to spend every day, he gets to code. And he's like, that's, and that's kind of like, that's kind of my end goal is like, I would love to be able to get in a place where I can just work on open source. And like, I don't have any interest in raising VC money. You know, if there's something that, I, that it would really help with, sure. But like, at the end of the day, like, even if I, I thought about this, like if I made a hundred million dollars, like, I don't see my life changing significantly other than I would just spend my time working on open source <laughs> <laughs> all the time. I don't love like yachts or like fancy cars or anything like that. I just like, you know, solving problems that I find interesting. So mm-hmm. I think my long-term goal would be somehow to, to make it a sustainable thing that I could just work on in that sense. So that'd be my goal. This episode of The Changelog is brought to you by Render. Render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with free SSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto-deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex applications with dozens of microservices. If you're a developer or a founder that's frustrated with AWS's complexity or Heroku's high costs, you owe it to yourself to use the $100 in free credits they're giving our listeners to give Render a try. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure as code. Heroku customers running production and staging workloads typically see cost reductions of over 50% after switching to Render. Here's the best part. We work closely with the team at Render to ensure you have zero risk by giving you $100 in free credits, plus they're going to assign a world-class engineer to your account to offer guidance and answer any questions you have. When you're ready to transition your infrastructure, they'll be there to help you with that too. Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com slash changelog. Get $100 in free credits to try the Render platform, plus a world-class engineer assigned to your account to guide you along the way to send an email to our special email, changelog at render.com to get access to those free credits. All that begins at render.com slash changelog. So we've been talking for a while about open source, but let's talk about the software, shall we? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so the project is Lightstream. So it's L-I-T-E, stream, you know, S, whatever, however you spell that. Um, how do you spell stream? <laughs> yeah, S-T-R-E-A-M. S-T-R-E-A-M. Yeah. There we go. There you yeah. go, ben. Say it together. There you go. It's a way to basically, if you have a SQLite database, you know, you want to deploy your application on, you know, a little tiny $5 a month uh, VPS and you want that to run. It doesn't need to be the biggest scale, you know, platform in the world. But maybe you have an app. Like most apps can probably run on a $5 VPS running SQLite. But the problem is that if that VPS dies suddenly, then all your data is gone too. So the idea with Lightstream is, you know, you could do backups, you know, every hour, every day. But then you're losing an hour or a day of data uh, if that happens, if you lose that VPS. So what Lightstream does is it basically runs separately out of outside of your application in a little process and 
continuously pulls in changes to your, from your database and streams those out to S3, like a Amazon S3, like a object store, so that you're never losing more than like a second, a couple seconds of data if your VPS just dies catastrophically. That's the idea with it. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where it started, and that's, you know, largely the use case I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of really interesting use cases coming from other people where they're like, hey, you know, can I run this thing, but I actually want to have a bunch of read replicas too. So, you know, it's really a way that you could scale out SQLite, which is kind of a weird idea. Yeah, that's kind of a weird idea. <laughs> yeah, and that's not in there yet, but that's definitely on the, the roadmap right now. Um, and I've had other people that are interested where, actually, there's been a lot of interest around this whole idea of like the Jamstack, where I've never really gotten into the Jamstack, so please correct me if I'm totally wrong in this. But a lot of people, they'll take the data that they have, and they basically generate out the pages and post those on a CDN so that... You know, you put those on a CDN and then everyone in the world gets a kind of a local copy of that page and it's super fast and super responsive. But then if you take that idea and you, instead of generating all your pages, you just have read replicas around the world on these tiny $5 a month VPSs, you know, you can really have like a, you could have a global application where you have, you know, hundred millisecond or less latency between you and the, the server yeah. for everyone in the world because you're replicating it out, which is kind of a, a weird idea. Uh, there's actually a, a service, I haven't used this yet, so I'm, I guess I'm plugging them, but I cannot vouch for them, okay. called uh, Fly.io. Uh, they do, it's kind of like a Heroku. They have persistent disks available as well. But you, know, you can run those things for you know, a couple bucks. And you can, you can, I think they have like 20 different regions where you can deploy out to. So really you could run this kind of like, it's a serverless platform basically, but you can run the serverless platform for you know 40 bucks a month and you're running globally around the world and your users get these super fast latencies so mm. you know there's a lot of potential for where lightstream can go sorry that was a really expounded answer but uh the idea is really in a nutshell you know lightstream is meant to let you run SQLite in production right and kind of whatever way you want to look at that well let's loop back around to the jamstack bit because that is interesting and a conversation that's been somewhat ongoing on the show maybe even more so on js party but i want to I want to loop back around to that. Let's just start with like SQLite in production. Like, aren't there like it makes first of all, I'm a fan, a SQLite fan. But I do tend to like reach for Postgres when it comes to production. And I don't know if I do that because I just feel like secret SQLite's just not made for production. Uh we do use it, I guess, in one production capacity for changelog nightly. Like it's what backs changelog nightly, but that's like basically a batch process that runs nightly and sends out, you know, does some processing, sends out emails and persists, you know, its state in SQLite. But it's not like a web server that's getting hit by hundreds of requests a second and all that. And I always thought like SQLite was cool and all. And for specific things like in your phone, it makes sense. But mm-hmm. would would you run it on like a, on a VPS with like a web server front end? And yeah, you know, aren't there like concurrency issues with SQLite or anything like that that would, you wouldn't want to do it. It does run multi-threaded, uh, so I write Go. That's my language of choice. And um, you know, I've I've written projects in SQLite, and I will say, I guess a few things on that topic. Like, it does well multi-threaded. Like, I can run thousands of requests at this you know this VPS at a time. And the fact that you can actually you can run a request, and I've done testing where I've had you know several queries run on an HTTP request. And the total time, and this includes rendering out HTML as well, total time to connect, do the queries, pull that back, you know, render out the front end was about 50 microseconds. 
the way that you develop, I find with embedded databases tends to kind of, you almost kind of change your mindset a bit. Like I have this theory that all databases are actually the same. The only real difference that you have among databases is that is latency. So like once you have a client server situation, uh, Mm -hmm. you can't, you know, you have issues of like N plus one queries. So really you want to optimize to get as much of your data back in a single query as possible. And you have to do joins, you have to do all kinds of, there's a lot of um, stuff around right. ORM tools where they kind of like try to batch together requests and it's always a pain in the ass. And, you know, that query language is what kind of really makes the difference. So, you know, if you have graph data, you want to have a graph language. If you have document data, you want to have a document language. SQL, you know, works on relational tables. But once you actually move all that, the, the storage locally into the same process as your code, you really don't even need those separate languages. I mean, they can kind of help from a usability standpoint, from, but from a performance standpoint, you could just as easily look up your individual, um, you know, traverse your graph nodes locally using your own language versus the actual query language itself. Does that make sense? That's a bit esoteric. To a certain degree. Yeah, so I mean, like underlying pretty much all databases, you know, there's some exceptions, but I would say most use a B tree. And that's kind of, you know, you have a thing that you store according to a primary key. Mm-hmm. And that's true in a document store, in a graph, you know, database. Pretty much all databases use that kind of underlying format. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I'm like particularly in love with SQLite. Like I think it's a good database, but at the end of the day, it's a B tree that has some nice little SQL on top of it that make it a little more usable. In that sense, it's a, it's a bit of a rant, but I think once you move the data locally, then it really changes how you approach the database. So what makes SQLite different than BoltDB, for example? I mean, they're both similar foundations, but is it the query language? Yeah, I mean, query language, I think the, the you know, I've built data or applications on top of BoltDB, and there are a lot of things I really like about it. Uh, I would say the biggest thing that you miss that's really nice about having something like SQLite is that you're really you're separating out your code, kind of almost like your code schema from your data schema, where you know you might change your, say for example you change your your application you add a new type or maybe you like split off some type in your code into two separate tables. Does that make sense? And then you know you go to deploy that, but you know if you're if your code is very much tied or your, your underlying data in your database is tied to the, the structure of your code in your application, then it makes it really tough to kind of transition between versions of code because you're, when you deploy it, yeah, your schema changes, your data is still in that old format. Right. Yeah. So having that declarative schema and being able to change that kind of separately from your code, actually I found to be super nice and just mm-hmm. little things like indexes and like foreign key constraints. <laughs> So like really pretty simple things. Um, right. You know, I, I don't use any like crazy features. I mean, there are use cases for, you know, you know Postgres has all kinds of crazy features you can use. It does. Um, but at the end of the day, I use, you know, 99% of my code is just some select statements and like, you know, some DDL. Gotcha. So you can go concurrent with it via threading. And because it's embedded, I guess the, you know, you don't have the network connection set up and tear down. So you're not word so much about badging or pooling mm-hmm. connections, right? Because it's not connections. It's just like it's just the same process. It's like yeah. mem- in memory. And the only problem is that uh, it's just sitting right there inside of your, right there with your binary and you don't have it backed up, but now you got that solved with Lightstream. Yeah, that's that's kind of the idea. You know, when I thought about what was the thing that was keeping me from, you know, running SQLite in production, like replication was really, and disaster recovery is really kind of the main thing. And, mm-hmm. 
you know, I actually spent a long time trying to figure this problem out. Like the code itself isn't even huge. Like you can open up the code. You're not going to be like, it's not going to blow your hair back or anything. It's not that fancy. And, you know, but trying to figure out how to actually make it happen was like a long journey where I originally actually ported SQLite to go. Like that's kind of a thing I do where like, I don't understand code until I really work with it and kind of move it around. And the idea wasn't necessarily to like release that code, but just really to try to understand what was going on underneath. And, you know, I did that and then I actually moved on. I tried to do, uh, do you know what a Fuse file system is? It's like a, like a network mount thing? Uh, sort of. It's like a, you can build your own file systems in, in Linux, basically, and with Fuse. And it's this weird, I don't know, it's just like if you wanted to make a file system of all your GitHub issues, you could have like this intermediate binary that kind of interacts between your, your Unix commands, like LS and whatnot, and then your binary can translate those commands into, okay. you know, GitHub calls or something. Like people mm-hmm. do all kinds of weird things with it. So I kind of built like a, I tried doing an intermediate fuse file system where it would kind of intercept the, the writes to SQLite and replicate those. And that was kind of overly complicated. And then uh, the actual trick with, C- or with Lightstream, the thing that actually makes it work, is that, so there's a, there's a write-ahead log in SQLite. I don't know if this gets too much in the weeds here. But every time you write to the database, it doesn't write to your data file. It writes to this write-ahead log. And those writes kind of, they're just append only, so they keep it intact onto the end of your write-ahead log. And then eventually, you know, that write-ahead log gets too big, and it has to do a thing called checkpointing, where it essentially moves all those pages from your write-ahead log back into your database. And the, the issue that I had originally is that I didn't have any control over when SQLite would checkpoint and move that stuff back over. And that's kind of the keys. You don't want your, your underlying data, your wall file, to disappear because that's what you're replicating from. But SQLite has this little caveat where it actually can't checkpoint if there's an open read connection on the database. So Lightstream actually keeps a persistent read connection on your, or like uh, transaction on your database at all times. And it has some tricks around when to release that and checkpoint back. And it kind of takes over that checkpointing process. So uh, Lightstream essentially controls that whole process and is able to capture every wall frame, like wall write that goes in and then can ship those off to S3. So when you, you take the kind of the sum total of all those writes and you replay them, then you basically get your, your database that you, uh, your, your in state of your database. Does that make sense? I know that's Yeah. So a lot it's kind of like, <laughs> I wouldn't call it like hijacking that write ahead log or it's kind of like forcing it to be there long enough that it can piggyback the data over and then yeah. it flushes. Yeah. Or, and the wall basically acts like a circular buffer. So it kind of gotcha. goes to the end and starts back at the beginning. And so it essentially just keeps track of, you know, the end of that and tails it more or less. And that doesn't degrade the performance of the production database at all. No. Uh, and actually when you're running it, like Lightstream uses almost no CPU at no all overhead. or anything. It's, it's pretty low overhead. Most of the stuff is in the OS page cache anyway, like the data itself. Mm-hmm. So you're not really even doing much disk access. And, uh, yeah, I'm, it's, there's definitely some optimization still to be done, but, you, you generally shouldn't see, you shouldn't really notice Lightstream running. Have you tested it against larger, large databases, like, you know, gig, megabyte, gigabyte-sized SQLite yeah. files? Or? Yeah, I actually have, uh, I have a VPS running at all times. So actually, this, this is a, the one thing that actually gives me confidence around Lightstream is that, so there's two t- different kinds of replication. You can do logical replication, which is where you say, you know, someone submits like an update, you know, X to one, you know, for all your records and you're storing kind of that command of how to make the change. 
And then there's physical replication, which is what Lightstream does, where every page that gets written, we actually replicate that whole page. Um, and then we can replay those pages to build the database. So what Lightstream is able to do is that it can actually check some of the database. So you can do, you know, like basically an MD5 hash on the database at a point in time, and then it'll replay, you know, the replica from S3, and those two should match byte for byte. So there's a VPS I run that actually constantly pulls from the GitHub archive. So it's just pulling in events from there and building, you know, pushing them into a database. And then every, I think every hour or so, it actually pulls down the replica, replays it all, ensures that they're byte for byte, you know, matching exactly. Um, and yeah, it does great. I haven't had issues with, you know, multi-gigabyte databases at all. Cool, and it just keeps growing. Yeah, it just keeps growing, yeah. <laughs> growing, growing, growing. It's kind of like what ChangeLog Nightly does. <laughs> Only we're not storing the actual uh, events. Another little interesting bit is like S3 is super cheap. Like the, you get billed for a couple different things. You get billed for the number of files you push up there, like the actual request itself. But you don't actually get billed for the, the bytes that you push up. Like you can send up a 10 gigabyte file, but you only get charged for a single put request. It's only when you download the, the data that you really incur much charges. Mm. Uh, so I think the, the put requests, I think, cost like five thousandths of a, a penny or something like that for each request. So you can essentially run, you can run Lightstream um, where it's you know, pushing up every about 10 seconds and it costs you about $1.30 a month. Um, and because you don't have the overhead, like you don't get a cost incurred per byte sent up, you really have minimal cost in that realm. Um, so it's, it's a weird, like super cheap backup strategy <laughs> that doesn't seem like it should work but it, the actual uh, economics work pretty well although the, yeah. the vps that i run to continuously verify it um, does actually cost uh, a little chunk of change because it's constantly Download pulling down gigabytes of data so right so you're just replacing the same file over and over again versus proliferating files right is that why it's a single put no it's actually so it's doing a new put for every new chunk of wall rights that gets pushed up. Okay. But in the it'll, it'll snapshot it periodically as well. So you, you generally have about a fixed size of data that you're pushing up. And SQLite files tend to compress really well. Uh, B trees in general do. They tend to have a lot of empty space. Um, so the actual like monthly cost of the gigabytes tends to be pretty trivial too. Mm. So it's also a weird thing too, where people I've had people ask me like if I'm going to start a business around this thing. Right. Um, and I've had interest in VCs and whatnot, but like it has this um, this thing where it, it like almost shoot, shoots you in the foot, where it's like so cheap and so easy to run <laughs> that like I don't think I, I can't think of a service that would actually make it like easier or cheaper or like better necessarily like like could sell. So it's been a it's it's worked out great so far, but not from like a, a money making standpoint. That's not yeah. that's not a really scale so well that you can't sell it pretty much or make a service that makes it better. It is one of those things, yeah. In that blog post, though, where you talked about why you, you know, I think you said it's titled Why I Built Lightstream, you mentioned about scaling. Can you talk about scaling a little bit there? Because I'm sure that, you know, once you've proved it stable and usable and, you know, you can actually use it, at some point you're going to rely upon it more so than just simply a Greenfield application. You'll mm -hmm. need to scale to more CPUs, more RAM, more servers. Sure, yeah. Talk about so, that. Yeah, so I think scaling is like an interesting topic in our our field, there's been like, I feel like it's been an obsession over like scaling and uptime. I think that have kind of gone off the rails over the last 10, 20 years where, you know, we have this idea of like, everyone tries to build their application to be the next Twitter or whatnot. Like early people worry about what if I have to scale? It's crazy in whatever amount of time. And generally that's not the case, first of all. But, you know, given like Moore's law where we are 
you know, seen exponential increases in compute that we have available on a single box. But for some weird reason, we keep having like this exponential scaling of the number of nodes we actually need to run to run applications. Seems backwards to me. Uh, like we have, you know, we have nodes on Amazon where you can get, you can spin up a, a 96 core box for, you know, however much money a month, but that's a lot of cores. Like each one's doing 30, you know, 3 billion operations per second. You know, we should be able to, to run, you know, a couple hundred HTTP requests through that. So as far as the, the scaling piece, I find that, you know, most people, if you're running like a local SQLite database, you're not going to hit those scaling concerns. Actually, one scaling concern I find people actually hit is things like Postgres tend to have uh, a high overhead for connections. So you end up having to put in something like PG Bouncer in between that can actually start to pull those connections to not overload Postgres. Whereas you just, you don't get that when you have an in-process database. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's great. I would say that, you know, if you're running application, you know, I, again, I write in Go, it's super fast language and running locally, I can run, you know, I can push through thousands and thousands of requests per second on pretty modest hardware. Uh, and I think that that really, you know, covers probably 90% of applications out there that people are going to write. And even if you don't, you know, use SQLite for your main company's application, there's probably a ton of applications in your company that are on the side that are periphery that don't need to be in, you know, some huge Kubernetes cluster. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that on the scaling side and then on the uptime side, I feel like people have this obsession around uptime, but I feel like the more tools that people add, and I, I don't really mean to rag on Kubernetes all the time, I do, but I think it has a tool that has an appropriate use case, but it's not the vast majority of people's use cases. I think that from an uptime perspective, I think you're getting many more layers of complexity in there that are going to cause you to have more downtime than simply running a single node that may go down, you know, because of a network connection, you know, once a year or every, you know, a couple times a year for a couple of minutes. Like, yeah. I don't think people are really taking the cost of downtime when they think about the, the trade-off they're making to make these complex systems that give them the illusion of uptime. Hope that makes sense. <laughs> In your blog post, you mentioned solutions such as Kubernetes tout the benefits of zero downtime deployments, but ignore that their inherent complexity causes availability issues. Then you link out to, to this other thing, which I <laughs> had no clue of before, which is a public postmortem website for Kubernetes. And there's just like, it's an endless lot. list of post <laughs> yeah. for Kubernetes. It's ks.af. Yeah. So it's a compiled list of links mm-hmm. to public failure stories related to Kubernetes. Uh, most recent publications are on top, but it's, I mean, it's a few, it's several scrolls. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot. I don't want to like, you know, people have put in good effort into Kubernetes. I don't think it's a bad piece of software. Even like, the, I feel like core Kubernetes is generally good. I feel like the ecosystem around it is overly complex for most people. And, you know, I feel like Kubernetes is the future, but I don't think it's the present right now. Like, I feel like people really need to have a great use case for why they're going to use Kubernetes before they jump on there. You know, I've worked with companies before that are trying to evaluate their Kubernetes strategy before they actually have customers. And that seems insane to me. Yeah, that does. I generally have a rule of thumb that, uh, you, you know, the cost of going to Kubernetes is probably, say, a million dollars. And that's, it's not meant to be like a hard and fast rule. Like everyone's going to, it's going to cost that much for everyone, but you need to have a million dollar problem that you're solving with Kubernetes. And if the idea, like the, if the number $1 million sounds like a lot of money, you shouldn't be user, using Kubernetes. Like 
it's, it's probably well beyond your problem space. Um, so that's, that's my personal view on where we're going with technology and the complexity around it. I don't think people should take on those tools lightly. What would you consider the best use case then for, uh, I'm going to say it like, uh, like Richard Hip says, which is SQLite. Uh, I'm not sorry to correct you guys on that because that's what he said. Uh, SQLite. He's not here right uh, now. So, <laughs> so what's the best use case for SQLite and then using Lightstream? Like if someone's using Postgres or they're chasing uptime, or they're chasing scaling, why would a team or an individual developer that's building an application choose SQLite or Lightstream? Sure, yeah. I mean, I guess I kind of think of it in the opposite direction. Like I kind of start from a default of, hey, SQLite, as they say it. Yeah. Um, see, it's Adam. supposed to be like a stalagmite or no, something. Yeah, like, like, like a meteorite. It's a SQLite. I can, you know, actually, so this is a bit of an aside. Like <laughs> I cannot for the life of me pick up that, that uh, pronunciation. But whenever I'm writing, um, there's always like a distinction of, like if you call it SQLite, then you would say a SQLite database. Whereas if you call it mm-hmm. SQLite, you'd call it an SQLite right. database. Anyway, so I always have I'll this, you. I'm touring around the, uh, the grammatical <laughs> side. Anyway, so I think of the actual deployment from a different side where I feel like most applications would probably work fine on SQLite. And I think you really need a good reason to move off of that. Like, you know, if you're going to start introducing additional tools, you know, you're doing multi-node deployments, you know, I think that you really should have a good reason for that. Like, there's an inherent complexity in that, in that once you move away from a single node, there's a lot of things you can't do anymore. Like, you might have a Postgres cluster and it's connected to from multiple nodes, but that becomes slow because of latency to the database. So you may want to add um, some kind of in-memory cache but you can't add an in-memory cache on the, you know, the, the web nodes because those are all connected to the database and they don't have a full view of you know, if changes came through a different web node. So then you have to use something like memcached or maybe a Redis node. So you really, um, you know, I have this phrase like complexity begets complexity. Like you're going to, every time you add more complex systems, those complex systems are going to probably rely on more complexity later on. Like it's, you're not going to have a full view of, um, the complexity you're adding initially. So to answer your question, I think most people should run SQLite databases, especially now that you can run them safely. And I think you should really have a good reason not to, if you're not going to. Well, I'd say we would loop back around to the Jamstack. So I want to do that before we forget. Oh, sure. This idea of read-only replicas and basically shipping them off to points of presence around the world so that not only is your static assets CDN, but your your data store is CDN effectively. Mm-hmm. And so you could run, you know, we talk about edge computing and you know, you have these functions on the edge and uh, Jamstack proponents are big on that. But I always say, well, the function's running on the edge, but anytime it needs to interact with my database, it has to come all the way back to whatever centralized mm-hmm server the actual backend is running on right yeah it has to incur that cost of course you can cache and stuff so there are advantages of doing that but ultimately your database is still in one place or a few places and mm-hmm. so the the goal would be to get your database just everywhere everywhere right <laughs> and not have to worry about how that works <laughs> oh yeah that's I mean, right that's like that like... that does sound pretty awesome and so i've kind of just been saying like well who's gonna and then there's like well fauna db is kind of doing that and i think like 
a cockroach has some sort of angle into that. And like there's people working mm-hmm. on this. The, well, mostly yeah. what people say is like, well, it's being worked on. And so everybody mm-hmm. kind of wants that uh, because once your database servers are just CDN, then of course your application servers can just be that way as well if you have a separate app and DB. Uh, mm-hmm. But in the case of an embedded database, well, your application's already out there and your database is embedded and Lightstream's just managing that. So it sounds really rad. Yeah, that's... But they're read-only replicas. So when it comes to writes, you'd still have like a centralized thing, but yeah. writes are usually less often than reads. So it's like not the panacea, but it's pretty stinking close if it could work well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I think people generally, at least a lot of the web apps that I've worked on over the years, tend to be like 90% reads, 10% writes, where like mm-hmm. you, know, you go onto a website, like an e-commerce website, you know, you're probably browsing around a bunch, clicking on at least nine different pages before you actually check out. And I think that, you know, that idea of like the read mostly apps really benefit from this kind of thing. I think most people are pretty okay with like, you know, they get on a website and by the time they have to go check out, you know, they're used to waiting a couple seconds, you know, at worst for like a, a credit card to go through that kind of thing. I think the expectations around that are pretty okay. Mm-hmm. But to be able to actually get like to snap through a website to like browse around an e-commerce website and, you know, every page loads in, you know, sub hundred milliseconds, I think it would be awesome. Depend you know, no matter where you are in the world. Yeah. I think that's a, a pretty compelling case. So what would it take to get SQLite? <laughs> what would it take to get SQLite? We're really gonna spend most of the rest of this podcast. Gonna on call that it the way I've been doing it the whole time. Yeah. Make it real hard for our transcriber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to to just throw back to the episode we had with Richard Hip though, Jared, you did say that you were going to try hard to say it the way he said it. So I did try hard, and that was like ten years ago, <laughs> and I give it up. I also told Gregory Kurtzer that I would pronounce it his way because he was right here on the show. Sentence. And once he leaves, I'm going to go back to my own way. That's true. So that's what I'm doing with Richard Hip. So. Okay, you've got it now. Go ahead. Keep, Sorry, uh, Richard. Go your own way. Sequelite. I go back and forth. I call it SQL, then I call it SQL. I have no, I have no consistency. No one, not internally <laughs> consistent. Um, and now I've lost my train of thought. Thanks, Adam. What were they talking Sorry, about? Sorry, gosh. <laughs> what would it take to get SQLite plus Lightstream deployed in such a fashion? Like you mentioned, there's like some serverless platforms. Maybe they would have to like use Lightstream somehow, or like if can yeah, I just so. go to DigitalOcean or to Linode and just like pick. You know VPSs around the world, and then just like do my own thing. How would how would it actually play out? Sure, yeah. So I mean, I think the the biggest issue you really have um, around kind of these read replicas and ser- especially serverless is like you really need all your rights to go to a single node. Like it doesn't really make as much sense um, right. if they're if they're going everywhere because most of them are going to be read replicas. Right. Uh, so I think solving that issue is probably the biggest one. I mean, you can certainly do it in your own code. It'd be nice to make it more automatic. I'm not quite sure how that would work. But once you redirect your writes, you know, say you're pushing all your posts and puts and patches, uh, HTTP methods over there to one single node, you know, I think that makes it a lot easier. And then from that, read replicas coming into Lightstream in the next version. And that basically has, um, it basically streams out those changes to all the different serverless nodes. So that one system, the Fly.io, they have persistent disks, which solves a lot of the issue. Uh, you can do it without persistent disks too, um, but you get some issues around, you essentially need to download the database on startup of that serverless function uh, when it's cold and actually uh, bring it into the, the local file system. So that can be that kind of negates some of the benefit of a fast serverless platform. 
So those yeah. are kind of the two, two main issues. So the persist, persistent disks, I would say you can solve that, but otherwise it's uh, redirecting writes. Yeah, as you redirect writes, you're kind of turning SQLite into a client-server database, though, because like you're pushing all your writes to one particular instance. And so aren't those other instances having to basically become clients of that instance? In a uh, way? I, I wouldn't go that far. I think you can do a lot just simply with rerouting and like, uh, or doing like a proxy through an HTTP server. Uh, I think gotcha. you could probably make a lot of that invisible. I see so what you're saying. So the proxy you guarantee, you don't, yeah. mm-hmm. If you can guarantee that all your your Git methods are going to be read-only, then I think you could probably easily do that. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good point. Read-only replicas are coming soon. And then is Lightstream done? Or is there a future beyond that for the for the tool? Or do you feel like that's your scope and you're sticking to it? Um, I mean, that's I would say that's largely the scope that I'm looking for. Um, I think that... I really want to make it just hardened and just work as easily as possible. Like I think that's where a lot of work really, uh, really comes in is just like getting every single little edge case that comes up and making sure that it flows smoothly and that you can use whatever, you know, S3 story you want to use, uh, making it work well with like NFS disks is another thing. Uh, there's some, you know, different configurations you can do with it. You know, I don't really have any big plans for anything crazy beyond that. Honestly, like if I can get, a globally distributed SQLite database. I'm pretty happy. (laughs) Well, Ben, thank you so much for, I suppose, being bold to say no to contributions. Bold enough to to ruffle some feathers, but I mean, that's certainly one way to draw some attention to a new project. So congrats on uh, winning, at least, on that front. (laughs) And thanks for coming to the show and sharing the deeper sides of this. I know that a lot of people, you know, have been on Hacker News and commenting and stuff, and they can kind of see some details there, but... Hearing a full-length episode like this, I think, does provide some pathways to understand what a maintainer is truly trying to do with their software. So, appreciate you sharing your time and your wisdom here today. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. I want to give a plug for Ben. He's got an awesome blog out there called Go Beyond. It's at gobeyond.dev. We're huge fans of Ben, so make sure you check that out. If you haven't heard yet, we have a membership. It's called Changelog++, because, hey, why not increment things? It is better, as they say. You can subscribe at changelog.com slash plus plus, get closer to the metal, make the ads disappear, and, of course, support all of our podcasts. Again, changelog.com slash plus plus. And, of course, huge thanks to our partners Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. And, of course, thanks to you for listening. We appreciate your attention. We appreciate you listening. And one more step you could take is to join the community. Changelog.com slash community. It's free to join. Come hang with us in Slack. Call this place your home. Changelog.com slash community. That's it for this week. We'll see you next week.